Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 23 to 31. Just to help us put things into context, we have been studying Acts chapter 4. Today is our last sermon here in Acts chapter 4, and we've been looking at the theme of faithfulness and persecution by looking at Peter and John and their faithfulness in spreading the gospel, even in the face of opposition. And so they were arrested for this, and they continued to proclaim the gospel, and they were threatened to stop And then we come to the prayer that we will read today. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us pray. O gracious Father. We thank you for your magnificent word. Father, there is so much to be gained from this text today. I ask that you would give me wisdom in presenting it. Father, I need the the Spirit's help and, and your people need the Spirit's help to apply the word to their hearts and their lives today. And Father, if there are unbelievers here, they they need the Holy Spirit to regenerate them so that they can respond with faith and repentance to your gospel. I ask that you would lead and that you would guide every word that I speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. J.C. Ryle said that prayer is the mightiest weapon that God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every 
trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. It is the silver trumpet that God commands us to sound in all our necessity. And it is the cry he has promised always to listen to, just as a loving mother listens attentively to the voice of her child. Dear friends, if we are to be faithful in our mission, even in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, prayer must be a priority. And this is what we see here in our text. And there's much that we learn by examining this text. So our first heading here is is the, the priority of corporate prayer. Peter and John were examined by the Sanhedrin and were told to to no longer speak or teach in Jesus' name. And they made it clear that they could not obey this order. But as a matter of obedience to God, they must continue to proclaim the gospel. And the the Sanhedrin wants to to punish them, but but they could not because they were afraid of the people. So, So they let them go. And when Peter and John are let go, they go immediately to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And how does the church here, these gathered believers, respond? Verse 24, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. As one commentator put it, prayer was the reflex of these believers. Imagine that. They just heard news that they are going to potentially be persecuted by murderers. The Sanhedrin were murderers. They murdered Christ. No panic, no confusion, no disorder. Immediately they lift up their voices to God. They believe that the most effective thing they could immediately do in the face of difficulty was to lift up their voices together in prayer. John Bungan summarized this point well. He said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Dear friends, how many of us practice this? If we were threatened today by our rulers because of our faith, what would we do? Would would, would we immediately take our concerns to God? Or would we first panic? Would we first be given to anxiety and fear? Difference, how do you respond to to the difficulties in your your daily life? Do Do you take your concerns to God? Or do you dwell upon them and try to figure things out until you become anxious and overwhelmed? Do we try so desperately to to figure things out on our own before ever going to God in prayer. Paul gives us great great wisdom in Philippians 4 that we see applied here in this text. Paul wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what we see being played out in our text. Paul essentially says, instead of being anxious, 
And instead of being anxious, take everything to God in prayer with a heart of thanksgiving. And when you do this, the peace of God, which is beyond comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds from anxiety. And he uses a military term here to guard. The peace of God will guard you. When instead of being anxious, you, you, you take your worries and your concerns to God and prayer. And this is how these believers in Acts may maintain their composure dur- during this difficult time. We, we don't see anxiety being expressed here. They immediately go to prayer. What is the words of that, that old hymn? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not take everything to God in prayer. So, so once again, prayer... It's like a a reflex to these believers, and and it guards them from this. But if you're like me, sometimes you dwell upon your difficulty, maybe get a little bit anxious, try to figure things out, before you actually realize, why haven't I prayed yet? But, But let us take note of what these believers do here, that we may imitate their example. As soon as the difficulty arises, give yourself to prayer. Go to God to prayer. And secondly, we should note that they prayed together. It wasn't just that they all prayed. They specifically lifted their voices together. This is an important detail. They could have all prayed silently amongst themselves. They could have departed and went to their own homes, to their own prayer closets to pray. But this is not what Luke tells us. Luke tells us they lifted their voices together. Corporate prayer is a priority in the early church. And by corporate prayer, I mean Christians getting together to pray. And we see this all throughout Acts. Acts chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were together doing this. Acts chapter 2. They had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They literally devoted themselves to praying together. And when Peter was rescued from prison by an angel... He immediately goes to other believers, and what were those believers doing? Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And when he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is a normal thing for them. And and honestly, I think there's a clear connection between the the corporate prayer of the church in Acts and, and the success they had in spreading the gospel even with fierce Opposition. One of the old divines said the Holy Spirit loves to answer petitions that are appended with many signatures. And while this angel was rescuing Peter from prison so that he could continue to spread the gospel, what were the believers doing? They were praying. And, and I don't think this is a coincidence. Thomas Watson said the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Let me ask you here today, does corporate prayer mean anything to you? Is it important to you? Do you see it as a necessity? 
something that is vital as a church? Or or do you see it as a, a useless thing, a boring thing that is to be avoided at all cost? Spurgeon said, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general. To the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And I would argue not just the the formal prayer meeting, but but the idea of getting together corporately with other believers to pray. Does this have value to us? And I would argue that not only will we not see much change in the church, but we won't see change in the culture until we as Christians value prayer in this way. Do you desire for harbor to be faithful in fulfilling its mission? Do you desire to see souls saved in Holland and the surrounding area? Do you desire for our church to grow into a healthy, thriving, vibrant body, faithful to the Lord? Do you desire for our city to be changed? Do you desire to see abortion put to an end? Do you desire that that biblical ethics and morality be be practiced by our leaders? Dear friends, if we truly desire these things, one of the most effective things we can do is to lift up our voices together to God in prayer. And perhaps some will say, what's so important about prayer? Dear friends, we don't understand the importance of prayer because oftentimes we forget to whom it is that we are praying. We are not praying to a, a small, weak, helpless, or dead God. We are not praying to a statue made by the hands of a man. Of course, that's useless. That's worthless. But we're also not praying to to a God who doesn't have power and who doesn't have authority. We're not praying to to a God who who doesn't intervene in the lives of men and in the events here on earth. So, So our second heading here is remember that we pray to a sovereign God. Notice what Luke writes. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Did you notice how they address God? Usually we start our prayers by saying, Our Father. And this is good. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But here they, they change it up. They say, Sovereign Lord. And this is a very unique term. It's, it's not a word that's usually used in the New Testament. So it's only used about five times. The, the Greek word here is, Despotes. And what does that sound like to you? A despot. This is where we get the English word, a despot. And what is a despot? It is a a sovereign, a ruler who has absolute authority and absolute power. MacArthur notes that that the word speaks of an absolute master. So, So God is a sovereign God. So they start this prayer. Who are they coming before? Sovereign Lord with absolute power and absolute authority. This is to whom we are praying. And what does it mean that God is sovereign? 
Well, notice how they continue. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, God has absolute power and authority. And this is manifested in the creation of the world and everything in it. We have a saying in science that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. But there's someone who created matter. This is a powerful God who can speak things into existence. This is the God to whom we pray. Derek Thomas said that God is sovereign in creation, providence, redemption, and judgment. God is king and Lord of all. To put this another way, nothing happens without God's willing it to happen, willing it to happen before it happens, and willing it to happen in the way that it happens. To say that God is sovereign is to express his almightiness in every way. We think of kings in the Old Testament. It's powerful, powerful men with, with, with power and authority. But, but what does one of the most powerful men to ever live say about God's sovereignty? Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. He learned about God's sovereignty. And how did Nebuchadnezzar describe God's sovereignty? He writes, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king on earth, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's reign and his rule is eternal. His kingdom endures forever. He does his own will, both in heaven and on earth, and no one can stop him from doing what he does. No one can stay his hand. And no one can question what it is that he has done. Nebuchadnezzar says, no one can say to him, what have you done? This It's how a sovereign king on earth describes the sovereign God. God has all power and all authority. So these believers address God as the absolute master, the sovereign Lord with all power and all authority. And as they are praying, they are reminding themselves that they are praying to the absolutely sovereign God. Why does this matter, dear friend? Does this matter? Does it matter what we think about God as we pray? Are we going before a God in prayer who is weak and powerless? You don't think that would change the way you pray? If you're going to the the, the deistic God who, who doesn't intervene in the lives of man, that changes the way you pray. But these believers remind themselves of the absolute sovereignty of God. When we face large and difficult problems, it is easy to think of our problems as huge and our God as small. 
How, how easy would it be for these believers in Acts to, to think much of the, the threats of the powerful Sanhedrin while thinking little of the power of their God? As we approach God in prayer, we need to realize that, that our problems will shrink in our minds when we, when we make much of God. You, you, did you notice they don't start their prayer with God? The Sanhedrin is so powerful. that They're so mighty. They have so much authority on earth. No, they're not dwelling upon that. That The Sanhedrin is small in light of the fact that they pray to a sovereign God. Do we belittle God in our prayers? Or perhaps even by our lack of prayers? Do you refuse to, to take things to God in prayer because you believe God can't help you? <clears throat> I'm not going to pray for this nation. This nation is beyond God's help. Is that what we believe as Reformed people? But let me ask you, how many of us live that way? Nothing will ever change. Why? We really don't think God is sovereign. Do you, do you pray to God with, with hesitation? Because you believe that your problems are, are, are so large and, and so overwhelming that God can't deliver you. Dear friend, what is your problems to a God who spoke the very word, world into existence? Well, what is your problems to him? They are tiny. They are small. He can take care of them in the blink of an eye. You see, what we believe about God's power and authority matters when we pray. You've heard me quote several times that, that hymn of John Newton. What does he say? We are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. Difference, the only way you, you bring large petitions to God, the only way you do this with, with confidence that you are not asking too much as if you believe that you are praying to a sovereign God who can do anything He wants. No one can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? I don't care how large your problem is. Go to God and ask Him for help. He is able. He is powerful. He, he is sovereign. God, listen, God loves to even show His, his sovereignty throughout history. We think of like the, the children of Israel. They, they are escaping Egypt and Pharaoh's army decides to pursue them. And, and they're stuck between two mountains on one side, Pi-Hirith and, and Bel-Zephon on the other. And in front of them, the Red Sea. And behind them, the Egyptian army. What are they going to do? Our predicament is bad. There is no way to escape this. And God says, that's exactly where I want you. So that you know salvation is of the Lord. And what does he do? He, he puts fire behind them to block the army and he parts the Red Sea and he said, I am making a way here where there was no way because I can do this. I am sovereign. Difference, this is the God to whom we pray. Yes, you don't, you don't see an escape. You think it's too hard. You think it's too difficult. But it's nothing to God. It's simply the speaking of a word to God. 
And when we understand God's sovereignty, it has implications beyond this. Because of God's sovereignty, what we see here in our text is that, is that opposition to the gospel is futile. And so our third heading here is the, the futility of opposition to the gospel. Listen to what he says. Verse 25. He says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. We saw several times in this chapter how Peter makes it clear that the members of the Sanhedrin are at odds with God. That their actions and their words reveal their opposition to to God and His Messiah. They, they, They crucified the Messiah as Peter told them. And they rejected the stone that God made the chief cornerstone. They arrested Peter and John for proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they commanded and threatened Peter and John to no longer speak or teach in Jesus' name. Peter and John, along with the early church, recognized this behavior for what it was. It was opposition to God, opposition to the Messiah. Do they fear? Knowing that the Sanhedrin have set themselves in opposition to God the Father and God the Son, these believers quote Psalm 2 in their prayer. The Sanhedrin did actually have power and authority on earth, and they were dangerous men. They they also clearly set themselves in opposition to God. And these believers recognize they have a mission to complete, but powerful men have set themselves in opposition to it. So what do they do? They remind themselves of God's sovereignty. And then they remind themselves of how futile opposition to God is in light of His sovereignty. If God is the sovereign Lord, who can stand against His will? If Christ has commanded us to to make disciples, baptize them, and to teach them to obey all that He commands, who can stand against this? If Christ was given all authority both in heaven and on earth and said, in light of my authority, go into the world and do this, who can oppose it? Yes, rulers have set themselves in opposition to the advancement of the gospel. But but what are we to think about this in light of God's sovereignty? Should we fear? Should, Should we stop evangelizing? Should we think the gospel will no longer be effective? Should we run for our lives and hide? (coughs) What should we think about this? Dear friends, in light of God's sovereignty, opposition to God is folly. And it will fail. And this is why they quote Psalm 2. (coughs) They said, yes, we are praying to a sovereign God, and in light of this, what has this sovereign God said? 
Well, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. It was foretold that that people and rulers would set themselves in opposition to the gospel. But but what would happen? Would they stop the spread of the gospel? Would they be able to kill the church through persecution? If if all of the, the most powerful kings in the world set themselves in opposition to it, could they stop it? Would the gospel fail? Well, instead of quoting the, the rest of Psalm 2, which indicates that it will not, they speak of the, the very fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 2. And so they go from, from quoting Psalm 2 to, to speaking of the fulfillment of this psalm in verse 27, where they say, For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is Psalm 2. They have gathered themselves against the Messiah to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What a marvelous statement. He talked about how the rulers and the people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, they all set themselves up against Christ. And did you notice what he said they set themselves up to do? To do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Do you see what he's saying here? You set yourselves in opposition against Christ. You crucified him. You opposed him. And the only thing you did is what God had predestined to take place. This is amazing. These evil men and evil rulers with evil desires created evil plans to murder Jesus on the cross and these evil and these believers here say these men gathered together against Jesus to only do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place now is he saying that that God was the author of their evil plans and evil Actions? No, of course not. God never forces anyone to sin. James tells us God tempts no man to sin. But God is so sovereign that he uses even our sinful actions to advance his purposes. That even our sinful actions and the, the wicked actions of others are not outside of the, of the control of God. This is what we call divine concurrence. Man is acting. He, he's making decisions. He's actively making decisions. He, he's living in such a way that he, he decides what he wants to do and he does it. And all the while... God is orchestrating everything to carry out His plan. 
What is the, the best example of this we see in the Old Testament? What about Joseph? Joseph's brothers are evil. They're going to murder him. But one of his brothers says, no, don't do that. Let's sell him into slavery. And when he's there in slavery, he's falsely accused and and put in a dungeon. But eventually, God uses all of this to to make him the, the ruler of Egypt only under Pharaoh. And he saves Egypt from famine. And he saves his own brothers. And his brothers come to him and they think that Joseph is going to kill him. But what does Joseph tell them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What does that mean? It means that these men were evil and they had evil plans, but their evil plans could not thwart the plans of God. They were only little cogs in God's entire grand scheme of things. They, they were only these little pieces that God is all orchestrating and moving together. And yes, they're making decisions, but, but ultimately God's plan, God's will, will not be thwarted. Consider that, dear friends. The, the, the magnificence of that. This is the God we serve, and this is the God we pray to. He, he is so sovereign that even when evil men are opposed to him, they're only doing what he predestined to take place. And so the example used in, in this prayer and acts is that of Christ. Men hated Christ. He, he was the most innocent man to, to ever live. He, he never did wrong to anyone. And even Pilate said, I, I find nothing in this man deserving of death. But he was so weak-willed that he put him to death anyways. And we say to ourselves, this is, this is terrible. This is awful. This is the most injustice we've ever seen. The only perfectly just man is now being put to death. This is the height of injustice. And all the while, what is God doing? Using the most unjust act ever performed to bring about the greatest good that has ever been done, our salvation. These men are acting in their evil. Their hearts are wicked. They hate Christ who is perfectly just and perfectly innocent. And so they crucify him thinking that they've won. That they, they crucify him thinking that, that their opposition here has prevailed. And the only thing they do is carry out God's plan to bring about salvation to the world. So we can see that although peoples and rulers set themselves up against Christ, it is all in vain because God uses even their wicked plans to accomplish his will. I love how MacArthur summarizes it. He says, having done their worst. Listen, having done their worst, they merely succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. If God is able to use the actions of even the most powerful rulers on earth to bring about his own will, how can anyone successfully oppose the gospel? When the most powerful, 
and brilliant. Earthly rulers are working hard to oppose the gospel and implementing their most thoughtful plans. They are simply a part of what God has predestined to take place. Do we understand that? We see the the evil of our own day. And we say, yes, things are, things are dark in certain places today, and, and sometimes we don't, we don't see how things will turn out good, but, but we must trust that, that what is happening is all a part of God's sovereign plan. It is not outside of His providence. Do we understand that? He is orchestrating it all. It's not that our rulers being wicked, our other men opposing the gospel being wicked, it's not that, that they are fighting against God in the sense that, that they are accomplishing grounds here and God is trying to push them back. No, God is allowing them to do what they do and He's using that to bring about His own purposes. As Luther said, even Satan is God's devil, He's not sovereign. And everything he does and everything he puts into the the heart of man and the heart of of evil rulers to do, he's nothing more than God's devil. He belongs to him. He he can do nothing outside of God's will. Our government seems to be growing increasingly hostile to biblical truth. And the people in our cities are embracing and celebrating sin, embracing and celebrating homosexuality and transgenderism and all types of perversion. And our rulers and our people are raging against God. They are plotting against God. Working hard to prevent the spread of the gospel. Take Comfort, dear Christian, in the absolute sovereignty of God. This is what these believers in Acts did. They're quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot vain things? It's futile. God is sovereign. It's futile to oppose Him. And even if we begin to face extreme persecution and opposition in our country, we need to rest in the sovereignty of God. Don't fear, dear Christian. We often hear about persecution in in other countries or or we read about the the martyrs throughout history and and it makes us fearful and we say things like, "I, I don't understand how those believers lived like that. I mean, how did they, they live knowing that at any moment... Someone was going to to knock down their door and drag them off and burn them at the stake. And so we fear, and we fear that, that this sort of thing might happen here. What if this happens here? And so we fear what happens if we are too outspoken in our faith. And we we fear the consequences of telling our leaders that we have to obey God rather than man. And we fear sharing the gospel with those who have power and authority because what might they do to us? And we fear our church being looked at as an evangelistic church in a pagan 
place. Why? Because we fear what people might think of us and might do to us. Our government is so powerful. What if they destroy the church in America? What if they destroy it? Two more things to to remember in this text as we consider God's sovereignty. Listen, if God is providentially controlling all things, which we have seen that he is, then persecution cannot destroy the church. We know that it is God's will for the church to grow and thrive. The church is being built up, and we are told the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we know it is God's will for the gospel to be spread and be proclaimed. That's why we've been given a commission to do this. If that is God's will, persecution will not hurt what we are doing. We don't need to fear. History confirms this. How many wicked leaders and wicked nations try to crush the church? And how many times has it worked? Not once. In fact, God is so sovereign that usually when people try to persecute the church, they actually make it stronger. Think of the irony of that. The more you oppose this church, the more God says, I'm going to make it stronger. I'm going to purify it. I'm going to draw them closer together. They're going to have Christian community like they never had. They're going to have a zeal for me like they have never had. So the more you try to hurt it, the more I'm going to strengthen it. And you can't stop it. Do we recognize this? Don't fear persecution when persecution purifies the church. And secondly, Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. As we have seen, God is sovereign over all things. <coughs> and so we say, well, persecution doesn't hurt the church. But, but can it hurt me, personally? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And this means that if you are a believer as we have seen, that, he, that God is orchestrating even the wicked plans of wicked men to bring about His purposes. God does this in your personal life as well. Everything that you experience, everything that, that happens to you is used for your good as a believer. And only an absolutely sovereign God can promise that. And He does promise that. And this is true even for the believer who is burned at the stake. This is true for the believer who gets a bullet in his head for refusing to denounce Christ. As I said last week, what did they do to that believer they executed? They sent him to glory. They did him a favor. 
Once again, as I, as I quoted last week, the, the, the pastor I once knew who would say, you can't threaten me with glory. Listen, everything you do to me here on earth will be used by God to help me grow as a believer. And if you take my life, you send me to glory. What can you do to me? Nothing. Man is powerless against us. MacArthur said, Faced with opposition, these believers took comfort in God's sovereignty. All their suffering was in his will. Being the creator of everything, he is in complete control of all events. Confidence in the absolute rulership and might of God was enough to sustain them. Yes, the Sanhedrinists powerful and they have set up opposition but God controls and sustains all things and we are in his hand and these wicked rulers are in his hand we don't need to fear we just pray but dear friend if you don't know Christ understand that God's sovereign control is of no comfort to you if you are not for Christ, you are against Him, you are, you are opposed to Him, and He does not promise to, to work things out for your good. If you are not a Christian here today, God is your enemy. Do you, do you recognize that? And His sovereignty will be a terror to you unless you repent and believe. But there is good news. That God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins so that if we would turn from our sins and, and trust in Jesus for salvation, we can be reconciled to God and receive eternal life. And not only do we receive eternal life, but we also get this promise that all things will, will work together for our good. Now this does not mean a pain-free, sorrow-free, easy life. But what it means is that in God's sovereignty, He uses even the most painful and difficult circumstances to make you more like Christ. Yes, you may still suffer, but that suffering is not in vain. God is using it to sanctify you, to grow you in holiness, and to conform you to the image of Christ. And so they pray to a sovereign God. And they know that, that opposition to this sovereign God is futile. So here's the question. Knowing that, what do they pray for? And so fourthly, we look at the petition for boldness. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And this, this, dear friends, is amazing. This is amazing. These believers know they are likely about to experience persecution. And what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. They pray for boldness. They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for comfort. 
They don't pray for ease. They pray for boldness. And now why do they pray for boldness? They do this because they are mission-minded. Consider this. Their mission is more important to them than their safety or comfort. Now listen to me. If you think that I am overemphasizing the Great Commission, if you think that I am dragging this out too much, that, that this is too much of an emphasis, listen to these words. Their mission to them, the Great Commission to them, is more important than their safety, their comfort, or their very lives. They don't pray for God to preserve their lives. They don't pray for God to preserve their freedoms. They pray for boldness. Their desire is that the gospel continue to be spread, which means they need boldness to do it. They are asking God to give them what they need to be faithful Christians, not what they need to have easy lives. This gives us something to think about. These believers emphasize that God is the sovereign Lord, which means He can do whatever He wants. He has absolute power. He has absolute authority. He can answer my prayer, and He can give me anything I ask Him. And what am I going to ask Him for? Boldness so that I can fulfill my mission. Consider that. These believers are are selfless. They've been given a mission to accomplish. And they say, Lord, I don't want safety. I don't want comfort. I I want what I need to be faithful to you. And right now, I know that we are facing opposition. So the thing that I need most is not for you to remove that opposition, but for me to have boldness in proclaiming the word so that I can continue to be faithful in opposition. Are we that mission-minded? God, if advancing your kingdom means you crushing me, then do it. Or is it, God, no, preserve me at all cost. Give me safety and comfort at all cost. This gives us a lot to think about. Are we that devoted to what God has called us to do? That we don't pray selfishly, but that we pray for God to give us what we need to do what he has called us to do. And and finally here, what what was the result of their prayer for boldness? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That their heart's desire was to please God, and God granted them the desires of their hearts by answering their prayer. Listen to this. This is the very evidence that God is sovereign here. This is what we prayed for. Lord, you are sovereign. We know that you can give us whatever we ask for. You are all-powerful. You have all authority. Now grant us boldness. And what happens? God gives them boldness. This needs to be our pattern today. 
if we desire to be faithful in our mission, no matter the cost. In the face of difficulty, we need to run to God in prayer, and we need to remember that, 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 that we pray to an absolutely sovereign God, and we need to, to remind ourselves that because God is sovereign, opposition to what we are doing is futile. It will fail, and we must pray not to have our selfish desires met, but for God to give us what we need to fulfill our mission and glorify Him. And we must trust that when we pray in this way, that he will grant us our request. And he will, dear friends, he will. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your word for this reminder that that you have all authority and all power. And this reminder that, that, that what we are doing as a church cannot be opposed. And this reminder that, 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 you control all things, even the, the wicked plans and the, the wicked actions of men. Father, these things are in your hand. So that there is not a ruler out there who can do things that you don't ultimately want done, or that you will not ultimately use to advance your kingdom and your purposes. We thank you for being a sovereign God and and how you use your sovereignty to even promise that all things will work together for the good of your people. Help us to trust in this and take comfort in this. And Father, we ask that that you would give us boldness to do what you have called us to do. And we would be selfless in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.